speak to you in what is the last message of the Summer Fire series. Have you enjoyed this last month, July, having Pastor Andy, Pastor Nile? Come on, last week we had Matthew Francia. You directed a great job. He did an amazing month. And of course, last and least and lost and all that you get me here at the end of it. So I'll do my best. Today I want to bring you a standalone message that is called A's Me A Key. Say it with me. A's Me A Key. It's Portuguese and roughly it translates as here am I. Now there are many things that make Brazil Brazilian. Uh, there's the joy, uh, there's the color, there's the vibrancy. You see the Italian origins, you see the Spanish origins, the Portuguese, there's the food, there's the music, there's the football, so many things. But perhaps the foundation of all Brazilian culture is the churrasco, or as we say in English, the barbecue. Because if you really want to understand Brazil and Brazilians, you've got to barbecue with Brazilians the Brazilian way. And here's one of the things you've got to know about Brazilian barbecue. Brazilians don't use gas. And if you cook it on the grill in your kitchen, it ain't a barbecue, it's sacrilege. If you're going to do a churrasco properly, you need charcoal. Now the Portuguese word for charcoal is the word carvão. Say carvão. And where there's no carvão, there's no churrasco. And where there's no carvão and there's no churrasco, it's a very sad day in the life of a Brazilian. I've got a photo here of what a charcoal barbecue should look like. In fact, this is still an Irishized version because Brazilian barbecues are massive. I mean, you could live in one. They're often so big. And by marrying into Brazilian family, I love meat and I love cooking meat and fire, so it was a good combination. What I wasn't pre prepared for was, remember uh, all those years ago at Snowmageddon? Remember that year we had loads of snow? Well, if you came to my house on the first day of January, every year that was, you would have found me and my father-in-law in three feet of snow barbecuing. Because although by Irish diners, that's mad. By Brazilian diners, that's completely normal. Like, why would you, we're off work, it's a holiday, let's barbecue. And so a huge part of the culture is this little uh, substance called charcoal. Now, what's so interesting about charcoal is that charcoal did not begin its life as charcoal. Charcoal was actually at one point wood. At one point, charcoal was alive. It was a living thing, like a tree, like a plant, like perhaps some other being, animal, whatever. But then it died. And over time, as it remained dead through a process called pyrosis, it became alive again. And what happens with so interesting charcoal is that if you take a single charcoal and try light a fire, it becomes nothing. How charcoal works is it was dead, it was alive, it was dead, and it becomes alive again because as you heat charcoal together, as they're in proximity to each other, collectively, they produce heat, which allows for the churrasco. The power of charcoal is found in its proximity, number one, to the source, to heat, but also to each other. If you want to slow down the barbecue, if you're cooking one, you separate the charcoal. 
If you want to speed up the, the process, you bunch them together. If you want to really get cooking after the charcoal's been burning for a while, you turn them upside down and the white hot side of the charcoal cooks the food even faster. But as soon as you take one charcoal out of the barbecue and toss it away, it has very little power when it comes to cooking. What I want us to see is that our lives, in some bizarre way, are a bit like charcoal. We're alive, we're dead, but through the gospel we can make life alive again. And there's a, there's a power, about, there's a power available to us as we're connected to our source, but also as we're connected to one another. I want to remind you this morning, church, that you have a calling. You have a calling. If you're brand new, you're not a Jesus follower, skeptic, just trying to figure stuff out, and you're wondering what is all this about, I want to tell you right now, what this is about is the truth that God knows you, God loves you, and that God has called you. Your calling is not your job. You have a job, we have a job. A job is a means to an end. But your, but your vocation, your calling, is the end of your means. The point of your life is your vocation. You call your job, hey, did I get it? But your vocation, call, your vocation calls you, hey, did you get it? I've chosen you. I've called you. I've selected you. It says in the scripture, not that we chose him, but that he chose us. He first loved us. And God, regardless of whether or not you believe in him, you can spend your entire life ignoring and disbelieving in God, but it will not change the fact that God knows you, God loves you, and God has called you. We summarize his calling here in the house by using two words, extraordinary purpose. In the full statement, we're a church that exists to inspire. It's funny because the word inspire comes from Latin, inspire, which means to breathe upon. It's not how you get a charcoal started. You have to breathe upon it, wave a, a chopping board. You know, you get the old, whatever that yoke was called, you blow smoke into the fire. Like, there's this breathing upon it that makes it come alive. We're called as a church to speak and breathe and inspire you, the world, ordinary people like us, and remind ourselves we have an extraordinary purpose in God. That Jesus didn't just come to bring us to heaven. That's going to happen, thank God. But Jesus also came to give us purpose on earth. And, and right now in this room and online, there's some of you here who are like, I, I know of this. Like, I know of it cerebrally. I'm not, it's not experiential to me. I haven't experienced my vocation. I haven't experienced my calling, but I was raised in church or I heard a preaching once or I, I'm familiar with the idea that I'm calling. On the other hand, there's many of us here online who have, who have no clue. We just have this, this inward desire to do or be. And we try our best with our means to try to achieve that sense of soul satisfaction, that sense of my, my, my life has meaning. I want to tell you that the, the, the meaning of your life, the, the, per, the fulfillment you look for and long for is not found in what you do, what you earn, who follows you, how you look, who you're with, what you're known for. It's found in being obedient to God's extraordinary purpose in your life. Now, again, when I say these things, there's pushbacks. You're like, well, you know, okay, that's amazing. You know, I, I, I'd love to be able to answer the call, but it's too hard. It's too hard. I mean, call of God. I mean, my dad was a believer. My uncle was a pastor. I heard this missionary story once. I mean, just, it seems 
so hard. Or somebody might say, well, it's too much. It's, it requires too much of my time, too much of my in, uh, investment, my resources. Like, like I'd love, one day, one day when I retire from life, then I'll answer my call. Or somebody might say, well, if you knew my story, Jamie, you would say, it's just too late. I mean, I, I'm a disaster. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I've done so many bad things, so many bad things done to me. There's no way I can ever even begin to entertain the notion that God would call or use me. Or maybe you're here after the back of last week. You say, well, I'm just too young. Like, yeah, I mean, one day God's going to come, but right now I'm just going to live my life my way and do things as I wish. And then when I come, come of age, one day when I'm like 45 and leave my mother's house and eventually decide to move in with another woman, eventually for 10 years marry her once with a dog and five kids, you know, then maybe I'll answer the call of God. Or maybe you're a skeptic and you're a non-believer. You're like what I was. You just think, you know what? This idea that God could call me and know me and love me, it just seems fairy tale like It seems too good to be true. But just like the charcoal, there's something that within us that resonates with this idea that we're not called just to exist without purpose, meaninglessly floating through the universe to the cosmos as a bunch of particles soon to face eternal decay. There's something in us that knows that we have a part to play. That even if our parents didn't want us or plan us or even if they didn't even know us because they abandoned us, still something within us says our life has intrinsic value. That, that internal guidance system, that like find home internal GPS, that was put in you by your father. Not your biological father, your heavenly father. God put in every one of his children the ability to press home and find home if they're open and willing. Every piece in God's plan has its place. And no piece is lost and no piece is redundant and no piece is without purpose. Every piece has a place and every piece has a purpose. Our power in life is found directly in regards to our proximity to our source, our Heavenly Father, and how we live out this life with and again, this is a side note, if you are a Jesus follower, you are a Christian, you are someone who belongs to this church, part of this church, or any kind of church, this is why being connected to other Christians is so important. Because what happens when you light your charcoal barbecue, Shuhasco, if you lump in regular coal? What happens is, is the regular coal burns differently, so the regular coal sucks the heat out of the charcoal, it never gets lit itself because it's beyond lighting and both become extinguished. We need to pay attention to who we surround ourselves with because there is a Holy Spirit fire that exists in the hearts and lives of believers. We don't not do things because we don't have to because someone says, oh, you're a sinful person and the pastor's going to come visit you and waggle his finger. We choose not to do certain things because ultimately we want to please our Father in heaven. It is a joy for us to do the work of God. And when tempted, and we're all tempted, we all fail and fall, and we all get it wrong at some point or another. There are, our response uh, to, to be sorry, the technical term we use is repentant, isn't one out of religious obligation. It's because when you love someone and you know you've fallen short of what they deserve, genuinely you feel bad because you love them. See, true Christian obedience is not birthed out of religious obligation, but 
a relationship, a genuine relationship with God. And so what I want to talk to you about today is this idea of calling. We're going to turn together to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, we'll read three verses, verses 5 to 8. And the book of Isaiah is a really interesting book. It's found at the back end, at the latter half of the Old Testament, so almost like halfway. If you, in fact, if you have a paperback Bible, which you may or not have, if you put your finger right in the middle and open it, typically you're going to open to the book of Psalms. By the way, I don't know if you know that. And then if you flick right a few pages, usually you're going to come to the prophet Isaiah. There were four what are called major prophets. Major because they had the longer books and a whole bunch of minor prophets. And Isaiah is, I, I find Isaiah as, as a character so remarkable uh, because he isn't just fiction. He actually lived in antiquity. He lived about 740 BC. And I'm so impressed. I was so impressed. My wife, we were so impressed by Isaiah's the tenderness of his heart to serve God, his perseverance in the face of a generation that challenged him, his, 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 his obedience to the call of God, that we actually named one of our children after him. So we have a child called Isaiah, or if you're American, Isaiah. And if you, know what you, if you know which one it is, ask a Jewish person because it's in Hebrew. But uh, we call our boy Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 6, we see what is called, or what is known as, or scholars refer to as the, the calling of Isaiah, the kind of, the, kind of, uh, the kind of commissioning of Isaiah. In verse 5, it says this. It says, woe to me. <laughs> Love that word. Woe. We think of woe like wow. No, there's wow and there's woe. Woe literally means ruin. Woe is like, cursed am I. Woe is like, oh crap. Woe is like, I'm in trouble. Woe is like the worst possible thing that you can imagine should happen to me. That's what woe means. It's, it's a really old, rich word that we don't really use anymore. Woe to me. It's like when you're watching your favorite team and they lose, you should go, oh, woe to me. Woe to you for winning, but woe to me for losing. You with me? That's just for free. Um, so woe to me, he says, I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord, Almighty. Now, to understand the context, later on you have to go back and read the full chapter. But basically what's after happening is there was a, the, the king of, of, of Judah at the time was a guy called Uzziah. And for the most part, he served God well. Uzziah died. And because Uzziah served God well, there was a stability in the world. There was a predictability in the world. But we can see, can't we, over the last five, ten years, how much individual leaders can completely shake up, right, the entire world. Because with their power and control, they can make decisions that affect the lives of millions of people. So Isaiah is recognizing, oh, we're in trouble nationally because now the next person that gets into office won't be able to satisfy the people around us who are about to be invaded. And, and in all the turmoil and all the uncertainty, political, sociological, in, in, all, in all that he is going through, we see this incredible moment where Isaiah has a vision of God. And you know what's so interesting? This is just for free in verse one and two. While the world is in turmoil and everything's upside down, everyone's crazy, God is still on his throne. Like long after we're dead and the whole Russian-Ukrainian thing ends and, and we pray for the peace of Ukraine, like long after all of our political problems are just, just footnotes in Wikipedia, God will still be on his throne. Like we get so consumed by our cultural moment as if it's the pinnacle of all human civilization. Our cultural moment may not even be a speed bump in the wider story of history. 
our entire life may not even make it as a footnote in Wikipedia. There's a thought for you to humble yourself. And so in all the turmoil of, of, of historical antiquity, still we see that God is in control. That God has given to humankind free will. And part of the gift of free will, and we know this because now with the advent of AI and robotics and, and you know, there's so many you know, advances right now in that area. I mean, maybe robots do become a regular part of life as we talked about for years. Meet George Jetson. His son, Elroy, anyone with me? Flintstones, Jetsons, come on. And, and maybe we'll have domesticated beings that like make your cup of tea, I don't know, and speak with an Irish accent. Will you have a cup of tea, love? I, I don't know where it's all going. But even if we do use robots domestically, we're not going to become best friends with them or marry them. Because at the back of our mind, we'll always wonder, is this person, is this thing is this device is it programmed to love me or did it choose to because you can't really experience love if someone's coerced or programmed to right so in the same way when god created humankind he gave us the power of choice it's not what humankind wants the power to choose I want to choose my body, my choice. It's my choice. It's my choice. Personal autonomy. We're so, we're so uh, devoted to the right to choose and not all that's wrong. But ultimately, at the very beginning of the book of Genesis, God gave human beings the power to choose. And the reason why, and again, maybe you're a skeptical or maybe you're a non-believer atheist and you push back against Christian faith because there's so much pain in the world and so much injustice and so much like 30 million kids in poverty. Why doesn't God? God did but when God created mankind, he gave us free will. I have four boys. And for the most part, they're all really good boys and, you know, really good chaps. And we love them and are proud of them. But, you know, what if one of them goes rogue and decides to make our lives hell? Or the lives of their siblings hell? Or their own lives hell? Or the lives of everyone around them hell? We all know people. We're all related people. Come on. I decided I'm going to press TNT in the whole world. Right? Does that mean we give up on children? Does that mean we give up on family? Does that mean we cut the person off forever and don't, we don't talk about Bruno? Like, what do we do? Well, we don't because we recognize that even though people choose wrong paths and choose sometimes destructive paths, sinful paths, paths uh, selfish paths, ultimately it doesn't mean the whole thing is wrong. God created the world to be good. And God created us as human beings to live in communion with him and each other in peace and joy. But there cannot be love if there's no free will. So God did not program us with artificial intelligence as robots to answer his every beck and call. God gave us the power to choose. And I always say the reason why there's poverty in the world isn't because God doesn't care. It's because humans choose to be greedy. There's enough bread in this world to feed every person. There's enough money in this world to help every person. But as the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. And I'm not uh, against capitalism. I guess people make money. Think people should make money. I think society is, in general gets better when there's more resource available to everybody. But the problem is not God. God doesn't hurt people. People hurt people. You know, we say the government's corrupt. No, the government's not corrupt. 
Politicians are corrupt. The system. No, the system is not sin. It's people. Wherever you find sin and brokenness, you will find a person with a name. And oftentimes, they're far from God. And so in the chaos of Isaiah's day, there's this wonderful comfort that somehow in all the chaos of humans making poor, selfish, and sinful choices, God in his grace and goodness does not abandon us, does not leave us, but is present with us in the mess. Now the reason why Isaiah, then in verse 5, if you read on, says what it means, because he in this vision realizes, you know, oh crap, like, oh no, like, like I am in the presence of a holy God, but I'm a thoroughly unholy man. I don't know what your visions of holiness are. If you're raised like me uh, in, in a traditional domination, things were holy. There was a part of the church that had a thing called an altar. It was holy. There was a little house where the sacraments were put. That was holy. Uh, the building was holy. There were relics that were holy. There were people that wore frocks and they were holy. It's like, man, there's a lot of holy things going on. What's unholy? In fact, the only thing it felt like oftentimes in the whole place that was unholy was me. It's like, I don't belong in this place because I'm not light, I'm not perfect. I'm not sacred. I don't fit in. I don't look like these people. I don't perform. I, I, don't, like, I, I, don't, I don't fit in here. But the truth is, holiness isn't human's ability to cause them holy. Holiness is so much greater. Holiness is that God is separate to everything and everyone. He is in his own category of greatness and purity and splendor and majesty. And when you come into the holiness of God, it's like, oh my goodness, I've never experienced anything like this. But the holiness of God isn't, isn't a rejectory holiness. It's like, listen, oh, yo, I'm ashamed of you. You're disgusting to me. God wants us to be in his presence. So ultimately in sending Jesus, he did something that would satisfy the price of sin and cleanse and purify us and make us, give us accessibility, if you want to say, once again within his presence. But in the Old Testament before Jesus came, the, the, the Jewish people used a sacrificial system where they would sacrifice a lamb, and the idea was that my sin was temporarily, trans temporarily transferred to the lamb, and vegans want to shut your ears right now, and that lamb was sacrificed, uh, and, so, and so with that lamb went my sin temporarily until once again I sinned, and once again I sacrificed lamb, and that went on for thousands of years until Jesus came. What did John the Baptist say? He said, here is the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. It's interesting because... On the altar where the lamb was sacrificed, there was charcoal. Isn't that interesting? And we see charcoal in the story because in verse 6, it says this. So Isaiah realizes, man, I'm unholy. What am I going to do? Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim. Now what's a seraphim? A seraphim is a type of angel. I'm not going to get into angelology, but there is a whole doctrine on angels. An angel basically, we're told, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongues from the altar. What altar? There you go. It's a reference to this, this altar where the lamb has been slain. With it, we're told, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. That word atone means to pay the price. 
Now, ultimately, what this, this, this moment is, is pointing towards is it's saying that one day there will be an ultimate lamb, metaphorical lamb. Jesus was a man. And he will die on the cross. And in his surrendering, in his yielding, in his giving of himself to God, his sacrifice will pay the price so the sins of humanity can be atoned for. So we get to give him our sin. What do we get in exchange? We get to be cleansed. And again, I know it's, it's like not a popular thought right now in our culture. Our, our, our culture is a bit crazy right now. But something in us knows that we're dirty. Something in us knows there's like a perverseness. There's a dark side. There's like just this random, crazy part of us that's always trying to pull us away from sanity and sanctity to evil temptations, plans and purposes. And you ask yourself the question, how do I deal with that? Because you certainly don't talk about at the pub with the lads, do you? Have you ever thought about <laughs> end of conversation, end of friendship, unfollow? It's like game over, your life's just done. We don't talk because it's just, it's, just, it's, just, it's so deep and profound, but we know it's there. What power is there in the universe that has the power to wash away my sin? And make me healed, whole, and new again? And the answer is Jesus. And Isaiah, in a sense, is experiencing a kind of a shadowing, like a, a pre-shadowing of what Jesus would do. That in this, in this altar, this Passover lamb idea, that just like with Moses, God said, the, and I won't get into time, the whole Passover thing, but this idea that there, there is a sacrifice that has been made. And through this sacrifice, if you're willing, you can be clean, cleansed. You can be made whole. You can be made new again. And what's so interesting is, is the purpose of this renewing is reconciliation. Because by doing that, we're now able to be in the presence of God. Not just be in the presence of God, but also to walk in the purposes of God. Because once Isaiah is cleansed, here's the key verse, verse 8. It says this, And I heard... The voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? I love this. What does God think about? You know, you're really, you know, you're really into someone in that romance phase of your relationship and you're pursuing them and depending on your generation, you're writing letters or text messages or emails. It's like, you know, you, you, you meet someone or you see them or you send them something and then all the time, all the time in between, you're consumed with like, what are they thinking? What to think of what I said, what to think about the gift, what I think, what to think of the Or maybe like there's a famous person you, you just are inspired by history and you often wonder, what were they thinking in that moment? Yesterday I was walking, watching a documentary, keeping it, it tied into Brazilian history, and in it my favorite Formula One car racer, Ayrton Senna, was mentioned. And of course Senna tragically died in Imola, I think it was 1924, three or four. And I've often wondered, like, what if? You ever doubt when someone, when someone dies tragically? What if? What if? What were the things? What if? We're, we're always so interested in what the thoughts of those that we love, care for, or those that we admire. What does God think? What does God think? Here we see. God thinks, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And it isn't a thinking as in, I don't know the answer. It's a thinking as, what are you thinking about what I'm thinking? Or more specifically, what are you prepared to do about what I'm thinking? 
And this instant, Isaiah says, the very end of the verse, last, last line, he says, here am I, send me. Or in Portuguese, "Eis me, aqui. Here am I. And it isn't just like a, I'm here, on Shaw. Like, I'm here, everybody. It's like, I'm here. It's like, it's like a humbly, reverentially acknowledging God, here am I. Blemishes, imperfections, doubts, sinfulness. Here's the totality of me. And if somehow you can use me to make a difference in the world, to serve you, to bring you glory, here am I. Send me. It's interesting because for a lot of us, we think about being saved or the gospel, our faith, our religion, about being saved from sin or saved from hell and saved to go to heaven. Listen, we're not saved from something. We're saved for something. Yes, there is a, a place that people go who don't want to be with God. Ultimately, uh, hell is just the, the full extent of the very thing people wanted when they lived their lives without God. They want an eternal existence without God. That's all hell is. An eternal existence without God. But the, the, but the message of the gospel isn't to save us from hell alone. It's much, much more than that. It's this idea that we have an extraordinary purpose, that we have been made for more. And that if we want our lives to make any kind of impact in the world, if we want to leave a mark, leave a legacy, if we want to make a difference, a difference will not be measured in how many followers we had, how much money we had, how much stuff we had, where we went, who we knew, who knew us. The difference we'll make in this world is what did we do with what God has given to us? And God has given you purpose and destiny, and gifting, and calling, and he's given you abilities, he's given you, he's, he's, he's worked with your life to fashion and shape you in such a way that you can be a precision instrument in his hands to bring about love, life, and liberty, wherever you go in the world. To put it simply, the only way for our lives to make an eternal point is to live our lives I shouldn't be inserting, that's the wrong word. That's an interesting word. Uh, answering the call of extraordinary purpose. Thank God for spell check. <laughs> the only way for our lives to make an eternal point is to live our lives answering the call of extraordinary purpose. So we think about how do we answer the call? How do we answer the call of extraordinary purpose? Well, very simply, follow the way. Not the Mandalorian way, that is a way. Follow the way of the word. W-A-Y. Number one, how to answer the call? By being willing. God is looking for willing people. Wherever we see people being coerced or manipulated or forced into something that's called God or of God or for God, that's not God. For to be God, God gives the invitation, but people need to respond willingly. The motive for willingness begins in our hearts. Willingness is this concoction of, I'm ready, I'm eager, and I'm expectant. I'm willing. And it isn't, it isn't always like, like roses and, 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 and pleasant things. Sometimes it's like, man, I got I to gotta get into this, into this motive of training for this 
triathlon I'm going to run. That's not me, by the way. I'm going to, you know, prepare for saving to buy this thing or go to this place. Like, sometimes we know it's going to be hard work, but still, as we think about what's to be gained from the sacrifice, there's a willingness in our hearts. We're ready. We're eager. We're expecting. It's almost like we all know the power of posture, right? We all know what it means to be open and to be um, conversive and to be uh, someone that's tolerant. We also know what it means to be closed and shut off and condemnatory and so on. Well, just like our body has a posture, our heart has a posture. And what's really cool is the closer people get to you, the more they, can, they know the tells of your heart posture. Anyone been married for a long time? It's like she knows exactly what's going on. But like how? I mean, because if you were them, you wouldn't know. But the more intimate we become with people, the more we see their heart and we know the posture of the heart. How much more God knows our hearts. See, there's a difference between willing and wanting. You see, wanting is a desire. Whereas willing is a direction. Wanting is, I would really love that thing. I really would like that thing. Oh, I'd love to one day, you know, like myself, wife watching a great program with James May as he was driving through Italy, eating food and drinking coffee. And I was like, oh man, I really want to do that. Anybody with me? That's a want, it's a desire. But willingness is more than desire. Willingness is desire in action. Willingness is desire on the way. Willingness is a direction. I, I wanted that, so now I'm going to save money and book a flight to go to Italy. Like it's, 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 it's taking the want and putting it to work. So many of us, we want to serve God. We want to answer the call. We want to walk on extraordinary rivers. And our whole lives, all we'll keep doing is lying to ourselves that one day I will go from wanting to willing, but you'll go from wanting to being dead. Hooray. Listen, it doesn't take magic. And we don't have to work or earn it. But what God is looking for is people who go from wanting, vaguely desiring, to saying, Lord, I am willing. A great example of this is uh, the Medal of Honor recipient, Desmond Doss. You don't know him, but he was made famous. His story, sorry, was made famous in a, in a, in a award-winning movie called Hacksaw Ridge. Have you ever seen Hacksaw Ridge? And Desmond Doss was a believer uh, during World War II and decided to sign up to the army, volunteered, uh, on the condition that he would be what was called a conscientious objector, meaning he wouldn't carry a rifle and he wouldn't shoot anybody. And of course, as the story tells in the movie, there's a whole bunch of persecution he goes through, but he's the only man in American history as a conscientious objector to win the Medal of Honor. How he did that was, of course, famously under enemy gunfire, he would run out onto the battlefield and find any injured, wounded people and bring them back. And in two particular battles in Guam and Philippines, he saved over 75 people. Like if a policeman or a fireman saves one person, they're a hero for life. He ran into enemy gunfire without any kind of way of defending himself 75 times. And to the point where his hands were burnt and he was injured and he was exhausted. He was, he was all these things. Every time he'd come back, he would lie in his, in his foxhole, the place of protection, a holy life. And he'd pray, Lord, just one more. Now, he didn't know if on the way to that one more, he would meet that, his father and maker and be killed himself. But his heart was willing. Wow. 
He couldn't control the outcome, but he could control his choice based on what he believed was his moral obligation and responsibility. Here's the question. Are you desiring? Wanting? Or are you willing? Are, you, are your feet on the path of, Lord, I want to serve you? Second thing then, second way we've got to answer the cause, by being available. Being available, why? Because whereas, whereas willingness refers to the heart, availability refers to time. Availability is all about time. And think about this, the enemy doesn't need to beat us. Oh, the enemy's against me, he's beating me. The enemy doesn't have to be, he just needs to keep us busy. If I can just keep him busy, if I can just keep him running around on that little hamster wheel, go on, you good thing, I'll go on, keep going. One day you'll get there. One day they'll love you. One day the world will know how great you are. One day they'll know your name. One day you'll achieve that sense of fulfillment and happiness that you long for. One day all the daddy issues and sociological problems you have will all be solved when you achieve this state of whatever. And as long as we're on that wheel, we, pay, we pose no threat to the real enemy. He doesn't have to beat us. He needs to keep us busy. Business is defined as the state or condition of having a great deal to do. I mean, some of us, like literally, it won't happen literally, but like literally metaphorically, the Irish juxtaposition thing we do. We say something literal, but it's not allegorical. Are you with me? So, so literally speaking, but not really, one day on our headstone it will say, here's so-and-so, busy. Like our whole life will reduce to we were busy. Have you ever stopped and asked yourself the question, what am I doing? That I'm so freaking busy. Like here, here, was, here was a really funny one to me. People were busy in lockdown. You'd ring people. Well, what's the crack? Ah, grand. What if the Asher I'm busy? Busy doing what? We're in a global pandemic. You can't go anywhere. What are you doing? Like it's almost like we think business is the thing that's making us busy, but actually we are addicted to the state and condition of being busy. Why? Because when we're not busy and we're quiet, all of a sudden, the questions come. Who am I? What's the point? Why am I here? And so to anesthetize us from the tough questions of life, we just stay busy and busy and busy. Oh, we're busy. Oh, we're busy. Oh, we're busy. People often say to me, oh, I know you're busy. No, I'm not. Look at me funny, like, but you're a leader. Like, yeah, I'm not busy. I choose. I choose. It doesn't choose for me. I choose. I choose to engage with things, and I can be busy, and I can choose to disengage with things, and I'm not busy. But I don't want my entire life to be reduced to, I'm busy. Perhaps a better question is, not what am I doing, but why am I doing it? Why are you busy all the time? Why? What's, dri- what's driving that need for whatever it is. And again, that's a question from another series. The definition of available, on the other hand, is this. <laughs> Obtainable, accessible, to be had, ready for use, at hand, to hand, at one's disposal, at one's fingertips, within easy reach, handy, convenient, on sale, on the market, in stock, in season, untaken, unengaged, unused, informal, up for grabs, yours for the asking, my favorite, on tap. Uh, get edible and gettable. On tap. What does it mean to serve God in a way that we're, our lives are on tap? 
Didn't Jesus talk about his life being poured out? Or Paul, sorry, Pastor Paul say, my life to young Timothy is important like a drink offering? What does it mean to be available to the point that the number one priority in my life isn't me and what I want? Because I, I don't even know what I'm doing, right? I don't even know why I'm busy. I don't know what the heck's going on. I don't know what drives me to do things I do. But what would it look like instead to say, I need an anchoring point. I need a sure foundation. When the world around me is chaos, where's my center? And what would it look like to have something worth living for? Someone worth living for. And because you get all your sense of affirmation, identity, worth, and purpose, when you're busy, you're busy on purpose. Because you have a purpose. See, availability is not about doing nothing, but being ready to do something for God. And too many Christians will miss their call, not because God didn't call or because he didn't hear, it's because when God called, they were too busy. Wow. I thank God personally for two more Brazilians. And these are my parents-in-law, Lord's parents, Raul and Rosanne. This is a photo with a post on Instagram a while back. Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his suffering, great prayer, uh, becoming like him in his death. Wow, nice Instagram post, it's your regular thing you see on Instagram. I want to be like Jesus and die, praise the Lord. Um, but what's so interesting is they've done this because, because at the age of 49 years old, my father-in-law felt the call of God to, no big deal, just sell everything he had, <laughs> uproot his family, never been in a plane, never left their country, never owned a passport, didn't speak a word of English, didn't even know where Ireland was fully, uproot their whole lives, blow up all their security, their retirement plans, all the things they worked so hard for, and moved to Ireland. And it wasn't even take up a job. It wasn't like paid position like lead a church. It was just God called them. So they got work permits and worked in the factory and just went to two local churches where I'm from, one in Hackstown, which actually was the church out of which Niall planted his church, cool connection, and another one in Carroll that ultimately led to me becoming a Jesus follower. And when, after a few years, I felt God called me to come start this church, I said to them, so what's the crack? Fancy moving to Navin with me. And uh, we, we do, this, do this whole thing all over again. And they prayed about it. And I said yes. And again, because they were willing, and because they made themselves available, they moved to Navin, helped start this church. Six years ago, we were putting together a team to start Dublin. I said, well, what's the crack? Do you fancy committing one year of your life to drive down to Blanchetown every Sunday to be part of the first band to help get this thing off the ground? They prayed about it. They said yes. It's amazing to me that their greatest power in life isn't their wealth, their nobility, their influence. Their greatest power has always been their availability. When God says, who will go for me? They said, Aizmiaki. Aizmiaki. And oftentimes, not today, because today they're playing in the band, they're not an occasion, but oftentimes you'll see them sitting in the front row. That's who they are. You may not know their name, but they will have a bigger house in heaven than you will. That much I can guarantee you. Because oftentimes the least and last that deserves and is given most honor and praise in God's eyes. 
Willing, available. Last one, yielded. Yielded, the way. W, willing. A, available. Y, yielded. What does it mean to yield? Well, we know this. You're driving your car. You come to a junction. It isn't a T-junction, so it's not a stop sign. It's kind of like a weird slip road thing. And so the sign is different. It's not your regular, like, what is it, hexagon, hexagon, stop, around, stop. It's like, yield. What does yield mean? Is it a suggestion? Is it a commandment? Who's yielding to who? Well, all I say is, ignore the yield sign and see what happens. <laughs> You're going to be paying someone's insurance. <laughs> to yield means don't fully stop, don't fully quit, but give the other person preference. Give the other person the right of way. Allow them to go first. You see, where willingness is a matter of the heart and availability is a matter of time, yielding and living yielded is a matter of control. Who is in control of your life? Control is about two things, power and authority. Who has power and authority in your life? One of the reasons why we get so freaked out about relationships is because we recognize that to be in a friendship or to be in a marriage or to be any kind of business partnership, there's a sense where I can't have total control over the thing. And we, we get freaked out because we're convinced that if I have total control, things will be okay. Question, survey, don't answer. How is that going for you? Because those that are actually good at completely controlling everything, nobody likes them. They're so good at control, they control people out of their lives. And again, I'm not saying we shouldn't have standards, shouldn't be organized, and shouldn't be control. What I'm saying is, is when we're obsessed with control to the point where we can't live with other human beings, what is the point of living? But perhaps deeper ingrained into that mindset is an even better question. Well, who would I trust? To allow any kind of control of me. If, you, if you're like me, you've, you come from a background where... You've been controlled and manipulated and it's hurt you. It's very hard to trust people. But trust, trusting people and loving people is not a feeling, it's a choice. It's a choice you make. It's a choice. And as a pastor, over many, many years, loving people, serving people, sacrifice people, people will take it for granted. They will chew you up and spit you out. Oh, pastor, I love you. Oh, you're the best preacher in the world. I love this church. Oh, to like, literally, last week I was walking in town, I saw someone from East Peter Church, and they literally put in, po- in Facebook or somewhere, these people don't know the Bible and nothing about God. And I'm walking, I see them, and they see me, and we see each other, and it's like, oh, here we go. I'm like, okay, I have power now. If I can say something, and I can say it loudly, yes! Or I can choose what Jesus told me to do and love those who persecute me. And so not that I get it right all the time, but that moment did, I said, hey, how's the family? How's the health? How's the daughter? How's the dog? How's the weather? How's the tulip? You know, the whole thing you do, genuine. I chose to love them. It's a choice. When it comes to yielding, the, the question is, who will I acknowledge as Lord of and over my life? And I get it, because behind that is a deeper question. Well, who is worthy to be Lord over my life? And the answer is Jesus. Here's why this is important. Why? Because how you see God will determine how you serve God. 
If you see God as an angry Machiavellian type character up there in heaven, shifting levers, Wizard of Oz like, then you will, you, will, you, will, you will create a form of worship that will reflect that image of God. But if you see God as a holy God, yes, but also as a heavenly father. You see, I had a grandfather and he was like a father figure to me and he was very fatherly, but he was also old school in principles. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Be on time. Be a man of your word. Don't lie. I used to have a stutter as a kid. I used to st- 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 stutter like that. And I'd go in like, oh, they call him Pappy. Pappy, and he'd be like, whoa, stop. Think, process, speak. Like he literally, I don't know why he squeezed talking out of me properly. He was just old school. And in that man, I had this perfect picture of what it means to be someone of principle and value and have standards, but at the same time, loving, gentle, compassionate, and kind. Some of us were living with only one half of the picture. Either, oh, God is like a hippie on a beach, man, and we're all going to just end up in heaven surfing. Or God is like this fire nostrils, angry like you're maybe your father, mother, and you're terrified. How we see God shapes how we serve him. God is holy, but he's also heavenly. And he is the point of our purpose. The point of our purpose isn't fame, notoriety, wealth, and things. The point of our purpose is to one day hear the words, well done, my son and my daughter. Welcome home. That place that we long for, that I'm not really home, I don't really feel settled, I don't really, a thing we're chasing. It's eternity with our Father in heaven. The highest form of life and meaning can only be found in a life that is surrendered to God. The first step of extraordinary purpose is a willing availability that is yielded to the plans and purposes of our Heavenly Father. So to begin to close this thing, here's the question, what's the real pushback? Like, why won't you answer the call really? Why won't you, why aren't you willing? Why aren't you available? Why aren't you yielded really? At the beginning we said, oh, here's some of the main pushbacks. At least people say, it's too hard, too much. Uh, it's too late, too young, too, too. What is the real thing that's holding you back from fully serving God? Because today what I want to do as we close this service is I want to give you the opportunity as the band leaders moment in the response song, I want to give you the opportunity to, to, to be real with God and to surrender to him whatever it really is that's holding you back from serving him. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's sin, deceit, pain, hurt, selfish grief. I don't know what it is. We all have, we're all humans. It's all in the wheelhouse of our humanity. But today the gift I want to give you is the gift of a moment. As we send a team out to Brazil, what they're reflecting in that, in that 10-day process is how we should live our lives every day. Hear my Lord, send me. There's a great story of uh, King Frederick II, or King Frederick the Great as he's known, the former king of Prussia, one day in a royal visit to a prison in Berlin. He's walking down the car in a prison and of course, all the inmates are rushing to the bars and screaming, I'm innocent, I didn't do it, I was framed, it was my fault, it's an injustice. And as he walks in the car, he knows that one cell has no hands on it. He goes close to the cell and in there is a man sitting there 
with his head in his hands. And he said, what say you? Are you innocent too? And he said, no, my Lord, I'm guilty. And I'm paying the price for the punishment I deserve. King turned to his royal guard and said, immediately release this man before he corrupts all these innocent people. Sometimes the prison we live in is a prison of lies. And it's self-made. We shake our fist at that former partner, that father, mother, world, life, politics, whatever. We shake our fists in all sorts of directions, but actually, oftentimes, we're the ones that built the prison we're in. God has given us an opportunity today to break down those walls and be set free. Oftentimes, that door isn't even locked, by the way. If you just push against it, it's open. So here's my question. Will you surrender to God? Maybe for the first time in your life. Or maybe again. Will you follow the way and be willing and be available and will you be yielded? And will you answer the call of God on and over your life? What is the call? The call is a call to extraordinary purpose. Can you hear the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for me? And how do we answer the call of God? What do we say to God? What should our response be to God? Very simple. A's, me, aqui. Here, my Lord. Broken, tired, beaten up, bitter, betrayed, confused, exhausted, unrested, busy. Some, some of us were going to even miss the Grim Weeper. It's like, sorry, I can't do Umbreeze right now. Can you call back in 10 minutes? God isn't looking for superheroes. He's looking for ordinary people who will say, here am I. As we're willing and as we're available and as we're yielded, I believe that God can use our lives to make such a difference. So the band is this song. Band can come right now. What song is it called, Avi? Whole Heart. Great song. And as we sing the song, Whole Heart, I want you to give God your whole heart. And very quickly, I'm going to ask the Falcher team to give every person real quick a little bit of charcoal. Some carvone. And uh, it's a metaphor for today's message. I want you to look and think about your life. But you know, if I wanted to go home right now and start a barbecue, a shuhatsko, with my little caravan, I couldn't do it. But if we were to all go outside right now and put our charcoal together and find a source of heat, then, we could, then we'd be cooking, as the expression goes, literally. Then we could do something. Every piece has its place. And every piece has purpose. So as you take this home with you, and again, I don't, you don't need to keep it forever. I'm not saying like, take it home and guard with your life. <laughs> it's just a, just a mental thing to help you remember. That in our sin, we were dead. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we can be made alive again. And we can make a difference in this world if we're willing and available and yielded. The greatest fire that can ever burn our lives isn't the desire for fame or fortune or for man or woman, 
are for human coming. The greatest fire that can burn in our lives is the passion to serve God and make a difference in, the, in our day. My prayer for you, as the band lead us in this song, is that you will be set alight today with a passion for God. And that as we pray and as we, in this song, worship, there will be a cleansing and there will be a healing and in our giving of our whole heart, there will be a wholeness. And that we can say with confidence, Hear my Lord, send me.